are ending our series on the Lord's Prayer. Oh, I have heard a couple of groans on that. But we'll still be teaching the Bible from here on out, so you don't, you don't have to be too sad. Why don't we uh, turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And if you're joining us today for the very first time, you're in luck because you actually get to join us next week for a brand new series. Um, we do encourage you to take a listen to the podcast on Antioch.is and all of our podcasts throughout the year are available to you and you can actually go back eight months ago and start uh, from the beginning of what I'm ending today if you so choose to do. Next week, we're actually starting a brand new series I'm really excited about. We're gonna be talking about, uh, we're gonna be talking about the, the family, the family uh, that we call Antioch. And we're just framing this as Antioch Conversations. So all of the messages are gonna be done in some form of a conversational format, and we're gonna be able to talk about some of the things that we believe make Antioch uh, who we are. So that should be a fun deal. Uh, we'll end September. The last Sunday of September will be what we call Antioch Celebration. It's our, it's our birthday. We uh, changed the name from Freedom Church to Antioch Church on the last uh, Sunday of September three years ago. So we're approaching our, our three-year-old rebirth day. <laughs> and uh, October is going to be exciting in some ways. Uh, we're going to be starting a series on the book of Revelation uh, in the month of October. And we'll be going uh, from October into a couple of weeks of November, hoping to address some of the main scale uh, culture that we find ourselves in, in more of a rooted and grounded position. And we think that the book of Revelation is going to help us do that. So we encourage you to come with open hearts and open minds. And today's message is actually going to be sort of a first fruits of that series. And um, if, you, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, we're going to be talking about the last phrase of the Lord's Prayer. So why don't we pray this prayer together? Uh, do we have that where we can throw that up on the slide there, Zach? Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Let's pray it with our hearts, and let's pray it uh, with faith today. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. I want to talk here just for a few minutes about some unexpected surprises that I've had in this series. Um, you know, sometimes when you go into a series, you know exactly what you're going to cover, and a lot of that is mapped out in the beginning, and there are some series that you actually are on a journey with the Lord as you're developing the series. And I have been shaped and formed in so many profound ways uh, in the past eight months walking through this together with you. The first is uh, my prayer life and my devotional connection with the Lord has really been profoundly impacted. Um, I find myself praying this prayer on a very regular basis, and I find myself hearing from the Lord through the words of this prayer. Uh, it's not been uncommon for the Lord to interrupt me and say, um, as you are asking me to help grace you to forgive others, there's this person that I want you to pay a little bit more attention to. And, uh, and I'll be led to go 
and uh, veer off of the main trail of the prayer and do some deeper level forgiveness. Some of those uh, times have been people that have recently uh, done things that I've not appreciated. And uh, some of those people have actually been people from years and years and years ago that the Lord's doing another, another layer. Uh, the, the, the time of the series when we hit Give Us This Day Our Daily Bread, boy, I tell you, that was, that was so profound. And that marked me so deeply. And, uh, and it heightened my dependence upon God. I don't know if you guys have experienced that, especially uh, during that, f- that season of the Lord's Prayer where we we're focusing more on our dependence and asking the Lord to draw us into his level of provision. The second way this series has impacted me is it shaped my understanding of the kingdom. Uh, I like to believe that Antioch is a kingdom people and a kingdom house. But the more that you understand the kingdom of God, the more you realize how much you don't understand the kingdom of God. And this prayer, particularly during the, the, the part of the prayer where we're focusing on thy kingdom come and thy will be done, opened up so many more dimensions of the scriptures and of life to me that I, I just did not expect. Uh, it led me into books that I would have never picked up. It led me into topics of discussion that I've all but avoided for most of my Christian life. And that leads me to my third point, which is uh, this prayer has unexpectedly shaped my eschatology, and it's, it is shaping my eschatology. And that's what I'm going to talk about here for the next few moments together uh, in the last phrase of this prayer, which is found in Matthew chapter 6. In fact, it's really interesting because this, this, this phrase that we're going to teach on and expound on today is, is actually not found in uh, the actual text here. If you look right here at Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, it says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, and then it ends. And then some of you in your Bibles, you might have a little, uh, a little annotation there that'll direct you to the bottom of your Bible that will say, some late manuscripts will say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we're not going to get into all the textual criticism of why that's not there today. Uh, what we are going to get into is the fact that Uh, It is a biblical stanza, and it's what a lot of people reference as a doxological closing. It's just a doxology. What what does that mean? It's a a worshipful statement to say, to close out that prayer by saying, Lord, yours is the kingdom, and yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever and ever. We call that a doxology, which is very simply a worshipful statement to close out that prayer couple of thoughts here about this statement. Number one, this statement, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. It is a statement about the nature of God's kingdom. The kingdom belongs emphatically to God. It is his kingdom. And when we declare that we are crying out and we are anticipating and when we are living in and looking for the kingdom, what we are essentially saying is we're making a political statement. We are making a profound political statement that we no longer associate with the empire of the kingdoms of this world, but we now associate with a new kingdom. You might have heard this phrase uh, last week when Jonathan was preaching. He used the word cruciform, which very simply means cross-shaped. So we believe that our kingdom is a cross-shaped kingdom. We belong to a kingdom of the cross, We belong to a kingdom that has been brought into its existence 
by our king laying his life down and being resurrected again by the power of God. We make a statement that everything that our king stands for, we stand for. Even the things that we don't understand fully or the things that we don't agree with and our natural, sinful, selfish tendencies or the things that are difficult, we say we want your kingdom to trump that and we want your kingdom to come. It's also a statement about the now and the not yet nature of the kingdom. And what that very simply means is that, Lord Jesus, what you began with your resurrection, we believe that we're living in that, but yet it's not in its fullness. We believe that everything you promised is also coming to us. So we live in this dynamic tension of being in the kingdom of God, and yet the kingdom of God is also coming in its fullness. N.T. Wright says, in Surprised by Hope, early Christians believed that God was going to do for the entire created order exactly what he had done for Jesus at Easter. Now that's an awesome statement when you really sit down and you unpack that. Because Jesus being the first fruits of the resurrection, the first fruits of the created, of the new creation, this is what all of creation is looking towards and this is what all of creation is looking for And the early Christians believed that. They believed that all of the created order would be just as Jesus is. We believe the watershed work of the resurrection inaugurated the kingdom. In other words, when Jesus rose again from the dead, what made that a definitive mark in history is that the kingdom came to the earth. Not in its fullness, but it came. The reversal of sin and the defeat of the power of the enemy began at that moment, and it will be completed, and we can take great hope in that. This is also, this statement right here, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. It's not just a political statement, or it's not just a statement about the nature of the kingdom. It's also a worship statement. Yours, O God, is the kingdom. It belongs to you. Therefore, you receive glory. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever. And it sounds very, very familiar to Revelation both 4, 9 through 11 and Revelation 5, 11 through 14. I want to look at one of those together. Why don't we take a look at Revelation 5, verse 11 through 14. Revelation 5, 11 through 14. It says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousands upon ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea. And all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped him. This last line of the Lord's prayer, it's a statement about the kingdom, it's a statement of worship, but it's also a statement about Christian hope. It's a statement about the last times or the last things. And we get that from very simply that that word that says forever. We believe that your kingdom and your power and your glory 
shall reign and shall last forever. Not just for a limited amount of time, but forever. Which leads us as a people to ask the question. All right, we've been preaching on the Lord's Prayer now for eight months. We've been talking emphatically about the nature of God's kingdom. And so it elicits the question, where is this all going? Where, what, what's, what's, what's the, the final conclusion of the story? Well, let's talk about that for a little bit. This prayer helps us in many ways understand and more accurately define our Christian hope. The word there is a theological word called eschatology. Many of you have probably heard that. Eschatology is, a, is the simple breakdown of eschatology very simply means the study of the last. The word eska or eschaton in the Greek just means last. Last in sequence, last in time, last in order. So anytime you throw ology on that, it just very simply means the study of. So it means the study of the last things or the last times. I like the way that one particular author I read wrote this. He says, when we talk about eschatology, we're talking about the end state vision of God's intent for humanity and the entire created order. So what is God's intent for the end? What is the final state of the righteous? Well, what I'd like to propose to you today is that I'm advocating a hope-filled and a holistic eschatology, a hope-filled and a holistic eschatology. Now, for those of you who want me to talk today about uh, the nature of the rapture and decoding all the things that are happening in the Middle East and, and all the different symbology of the beast, and, and I'm, we're not going to talk about that today. We're going to save that for our Revelation series. Today, we're going to take this from more of a holistic and more of a grander view, and we're going to talk about some of the, uh, the, 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 the plots and the themes of what God is creating throughout all of his scriptures and try to use those as some compass points for how to understand our Christian hope. Let me talk here for a few minutes on why eschatology matters. Why even talk about this? Uh, you'll hear me talk a little bit more about this when we get into our series of Revelation, but this was a topic that I all out avoided throughout my entire Christian life. I avoided it like the plague. And here's one of the primary reasons why. Because in undergraduate theology school, you have a bunch of 18 to 22 year old kids that are emphatically debating points of Revelation in the end times. And I'm like, y'all don't have a clue you, you don't know, you don't know. And people just argue and just get so vehement and it becomes so divisive. And, and I just found myself just, just backing away slowly from those arguments and really backing away ignorantly from the topic in the book altogether. And I realize now uh, that that has crippled me in a lot of ways, but by the grace of God, I'm repairing that. Eschatology matters, number one, because it reveals our view of God. Your eschatology really betrays what you believe to be true about who God is. And it's interesting because we, we talk about the goodness of the Lord and we talk about his faithfulness and we talk about his love. And then we talk about what our views of end times are. And they, they do not match up at all with the things that we say we believe about who God is. Let me just give you a couple of thoughts here. Number one, we believe God is faithful, Right? We believe, we absolutely believe that God is faithful. And if we believe that God is faithful, I want you to think about this, then we can draw some conclusions about the end from our beginning. If we really believe that God is faithful, 
then we can get some semblance of an idea of what the end will be and what the purpose of the end of all times shall be by looking at the beginning. And so today we're gonna spend a lot of time really just looking at our beginning because we believe that God is faithful. Now, why is this important? Because that what God has promised and that which God has started and that which God has created, he is faithful to see it accomplished till the end and in the end. If we do, oh, sorry, wrong page here. Um, So if we look at the whole of scripture, we will find that God does not change. And what he began with what we're calling the cultural mandate of humanity, God will complete the cultural mandate of humanity. Notice I am changing our language from dominion mandate to cultural mandate. And that's very strategic and that's very intentional because of some of the negative nuances that dominion mandate has received. A lot of people have even left the church because of misunderstandings and misinterpretations when we use the word dominion. So I'm using the word cultural and we'll explain that here in the next few minutes. Number two, we believe that God's consistent. What do we mean by that? We mean that when God created the earth, and you can find this all in Genesis chapter one, after every moment that God created, he said, it's good. Everything, every day he would create and he would say, this is good. It's good because it is a reflection of my heart. It's good because it has a teleological purpose. It's good because it is a indicator of my nature. It's good because my handiwork is upon it and on and on and on it goes. God looked at it and he says, it's good. And then when he created man, he says, it's very good. And I want you to know today that what God has called good, he has not changed his mind on. Now, this is extremely important, and we'll probably get into this more in the book of Revelation, but God is not a platonic dualist. And what do I mean by that? God did not create the material world, and then once sin came, he never said it's not good anymore. It needs to be discarded and destroyed and burned up and thrown away. God never said that. If God calls something good, it's good, and it remains good. It may need to be redeemed, which it does. And it may need to be restored to its original intent, which it will be at his second coming. But I want you to know today that what you do is good. And what God has called you to do in your vocation is good, not because it's overtly spiritual. Not because because we put these, these immaterial, platonic, spiritual, godly, churchy labels on it, it's good because it's rooted in creation and God says creation is good. And this becomes very, very important to the way that we view our eschatology. And I'm sure that some of you guys are already having a thousand questions running through your head and, uh, and we'll be able to address some of those as we go forward in the future. I emphatically believe that God has no intention of destroying the earth as we understand it and starting over. I have no no belief that God wants to whisk away our spirits, our disembodied spirits to a faraway immaterial land that we like to call heaven. I believe, and many scholars now support this as well, and the scriptures do, that God has called us to pray for his kingdom to come to this earth He has not commanded us to pray for us to leave this earth. 
He has called us to pray for his kingdom to come. A couple of thoughts here from N.T. Wright. Redemption does not mean scrapping what is there and starting again from a clean slate. That's not what redemption means. Redemption means liberating what has come to be enslaved. That, that is the biblical, and even when you, when you study throughout the Old Testament, and I wish I had time today to really go into the Exodus account as a biblical picture of what salvation is and what restoration of our future looks like, all found in the book of Exodus. When God speaks about redemption, he's not speaking about just forgiving us of our sins so that we can have a personal relationship with God. He is talking about, he's talking about liberating the entire created order from the enslavement of sin and evil. So we have to hold creation and redemption together. What we like to do is we like to either forget that creation happened or we like to change the rules when it comes to redemption. And redemption is not simply making creation a bit better. We're not talking about an optimistic evolution here. We're talking about God doing something that only God can do We're talking about him remaking creation, having dealt with evil. So when Jesus comes, he is going to definitively deal with evil and remake creation so that it begins to function as Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrected life. All of creation will look like Jesus and experience that same resurrected life. Here's another reason I believe eschatology is important because it affects how we live in the present. It affects how we live in the present. A great kingdom theological scholar by the name of George Eldon Ladd says, ethics is lived eschatology. Ethics. So our eschatology will shape our ethics, but our theology is supposed to shape our eschatology. Our proper understanding of who God is is to shape our view of the last times and the last things. Those two should not be at war with each other. And both of those things operating in harmony and alignment affect how we live and our mission in the earth. Our view of the fulfillment of our salvation affects how we attempt to live in the present. Man, I wish I had time to really unpack this. What this simply means is what we desire and what we hope for our ultimate salvation to be Now, if we hope and we desire for our ultimate salvation to be disembodied spirits in an immaterial land, that's gonna affect how we live today. Disembodied spirits in an immaterial, faraway land, if that's what our idea of the culmination of the work of of the cross and all of redemptive history is leading up to disembodied spirits in a faraway land, what is our motivation for today? What is our motivation for Christian mission? This is what the motivation has been. The motivation has been, let's just get more people saved. It has not been stewarding the earth. It has not been cultivating heaven's culture in the earth. It has not been development. It has not been transformation. It has been, let's get people saved because our eschatology affects our mission in the earth today. A proper biblical worldview will integrate spiritual and ordinary matters of this world. If we can't find that there is a holistic integration of what we call spiritual and ordinary, earthly, this worldly, the present, if there is not 
a holistic integration of those two things, our eschatology might be off a little bit. There is a relationship between so-called spiritual matters to the ordinary, earthly, this-worldly issues of life and living. We call this integrated or holistic salvation and spirituality. When we separate them, we enter into dualism. So let's talk here for a few minutes about how we come to healthy conclusions and biblical conclusions about the end. I just simply stated our understanding of the end, the end things and the end times, is rooted and grounded to our understanding, number one, of our overall story. We have to have an understanding of what our overall story is to understand what the end of the story is. And in fact, I'd I'd even like to say what the beginning of the end of the story is, and we'll talk about that more in the weeks to come. The inner logic of the grander story, what do we mean by this? God is writing a story. So what we like to do sometimes as humans and Westerners, and sometimes as as theological-oriented people, we like to just take a sliver out of the whole, and we like to dissect it and analyze it and chop it all up and form conclusions out of the piece, instead of understanding how that piece operates within its greater purpose, within its greater whole. And when we, when we do this, when we fail to realize that as individuals, so all of us belong to a grander story, your family, our spiritual family, and we as a human people, we all are fit into a grander story. And when we fail to realize this, we will be more susceptible to living disconnected lives from God's ultimate purpose. And we'll start creating micro purposes, if that's even a word. We'll, we, we will begin to interpret our idea of what the ultimate purpose is that will actually be skewed or will be off of God's grander purpose. When we don't understand the, what I call the inner logic of the overarching story, then we will misinterpret scriptures by our own biases. And those own biases can be biases of fear or biases of judgment or, or there's, there's, there's tons of other biases, platonic biases, This happens, we begin to interpret scriptures through our own biases when we don't see the overarching plot of the story. And what is that plot? In its very, very simplistic structure, the plot of the story is creation, fall, redemption. And some scholars say this and some don't, but I'm gonna add unto their restoration. I think restoration is a very, very important part of the structure of our plot. Every good story has a plot. What is a plot? A plot is a gripping tension that's met by a righteous resolution. Every great story that we watch has a good plot, which is a gripping conflict or a gripping tension that is met with a righteous resolution. Our story has a magnificent plot. God created the entire uh, created order to reflect his glory. And mankind has a unique role within that story to reflect his glory to the earth. We're gonna talk about that here in a minute. Um, I do have a couple of quick observations I wanna make about this plot structure. Creation, fall, that's our conflict. Uh, Redemption, which is our righteous resolution in part. And restoration, which is the fulfillment of that solution. Here's a couple of thoughts. Number one, 
Um, I think we have a tendency to overemphasize the redemption stage of the biblical narrative. What do I mean by that? Well, when you think about our preaching and when you think about particularly in the past 20 to 40 years, most of the emphasis has been on what happens post cross and resurrection. Would you guys agree with that? We put most of our emphasis on what's happening in the here and now. We put most of our emphasis on how God is saving you. We put most of our emphasis on how God is sanctifying you and changing you and doing a work in your life. That's what I call an overemphasis on the redemptive plot. It's kind of forgetting the nature of the fall. It's kind of forgetting the nature of creation. And a lot of preachers nowadays really put very little emphasis. And that's my second point here. We have a tendency to underemphasize the beginning of our story, which is rooted in creation. Our story is rooted in creation. And that has huge implications for how we live now and the decisions that we make and for social justice, for kingdom activism. But it also has huge implications for our understanding of the end. Because if we disdain or if we ignore or if we refuse to acknowledge that our beginning has its roots in the created order, then we will we'll, we'll, we'll be led to these faraway ideas of heaven and eternity, as opposed to believing that our future is in a new created world here on this earth. And number three, I think that we have ignored altogether, or we have interpreted um, this part of the story rather abruptly. And what I, what I mean by that is we almost all but dismiss an idea of restoration. So, we acknowledge creation if we do. We recognize obviously that we have a fall. Things are broken and in chaos and Jesus came to redeem us and then we just stop there. And that's usually where we just, we just like to stop there and we'll live good as, as good as we can and we'll try to tell other people about Jesus and what, whatever happens after that, we really don't know, we really don't care and that's the end of the story. And there's a, re, there's a restorative part of this story that I think is very, very important for us. Misreading our beginning will drastically affect the way that we understand our end. If we do not have an understanding of the initial state of creation and the nature of the problem, the nature of the problem. So in everything that you and I do in life, we all know that if we don't rightly understand the problem, we'll end up with wrong solutions. We have to have a proper diagnosis of the problem. That's dealing with cars, to dealing with education, to dealing with legislation. We have to rightly diagnose the problem or we'll end up with wrong solutions. Here's an example. I, I hear often that all of life and all of Christianity is all about relationship. It's all about relationship. It's really just about you having a great relationship with God, you and Jesus. So in the creation, fall, redemption structure, let me propose, if, if we assume that the highest purpose of man is simply to have a relationship with God and to worship God in, in, our, in our limited understanding and view of what worship is, this is the logical conclusion that we'll come to, that the fall didn't really affect the world didn't really affect the atmosphere, it didn't really affect the ground, it didn't really affect human culture. The fall really just affected us. And the fall really just made it difficult for us to have relationship with God, which means that the redemption was really all about us and saving our soul. 
See, all that stems from an improper understanding of the nature of creation, the nature of the fall, which gives us an improper understanding of the nature of redemption. So let's talk here for a few minutes about our original intent and our original purpose. Our original purpose will help us to understand God's design and God's destiny for the end. Our original purpose was very simply this. Believe it or not, in the beginning of our story, God never said, I created you to worship me, as we understand what worship is. Now, we, we are commanded to worship God, but the entire created order is commanded to worship God. We can't miss this. The sun, the moon, the stars, the rivers, the valleys, the trees, all of the created order is commanded to worship God. All of the created order we see in the Psalms and in Revelation, we observe that all of the created order, the cosmos is seen worshiping God, mankind being one part. We also see in the vision of the throne that there are four living creatures that are standing there that have the the face of four different creatures, one of which is a man, one of which is a man, which tells us that God deserves and God has designed all of his creation to worship him. Now, we tend to read that from an anthropocentric view, which means a very man-centered view. We tend to read the scriptures and we tend to look at this and go, well, well, this really is really all about us. And so we tend to forget about the created order. And I love the fact that when Christy was sharing the gospel this morning, she was saying that when Jesus Christ died and was resurrected, he did that to return the entire created order to its original intent, mankind being included in it. And that is a proper gospel. So how does a mountain worship God? By simply being a mountain in the fullness and in the integrity of what that mountain was created to be, that mountain is worshiping and giving glory to God. We see this every time we drive by the peak. We see this when we go to Uray, when we go up to Aspen, Breckenridge, you name it. We look at the glory of the mountains and we go, you are being fully what you were created to be and you're giving glory and worship and honor to the creator. So, how does man worship God? How does woman worship God? By being fully what mankind was created to be. And what is that? Mankind was created with a unique vocation. And that very simply is to be the cultivator, the co-creator, and the mediator of God's life in the created order. The cultivator, the co-creator, and the mediator of God's life, presence, and culture to the created order. A couple of quick verses here. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. If you want to follow along with me, three quick verses. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. This is what we call the imago Dei, the image of God. I've put my image in you. This is important because His image gives us the necessary authority to image him into the earth, to be the creators, the cultivators, and the mediators of God to the earth's culture. We do that by being made in his image. It says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness so that they may rule. 
so that they may tend, that they may develop, that they may co-create, cultivate, and mediate, so that they may produce the life of God in the culture of the earth. Next verse here is in Genesis chapter two, verse 15. Genesis chapter two, verse 15 says, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it, to tend it, to protect it, to cultivate it. You guys can look back at our series. Last year, we had a series called Tending the Garden, and we talked about the different areas of life that, that we're called to tend and to cultivate. We didn't talk very much about talking, we didn't talk very much about creating culture. And, and this, this is pretty astounding when you think about it, but culture now becomes a part of the created order that we co-create with God. So if God is interested in preserving and redeeming and restoring the entire created order, he's interested in redeeming and restoring the culture that we create with him in the world. This is very, very important. Psalm 8, verse 5 through 8. Psalm 8, verse 5 says, You have made mankind to be a little lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands. And you have put everything under their feet, flocks, herds, animals of the wild, birds in the sky, fish in the sea, and all that swim the paths of the sea. Now, as we study civilizations, we know that all culture comes out of agriculture. So the first thing that we find that God creates man to do is to tend the agriculture of the earth because out of agriculture comes societies and cities and civilizations, technology, art, education, all of it finds its rooted place in agriculture. Without food, we as a people cannot exist. Without food, we cannot begin to enter into the social and cultural networks of relationships that actually shape and form life on the planet. So why the cultural mandate and no, not the dominion mandate. The mandate to co-create, cultivate, and mediate God's presence and will in the development of culture on earth must be broadened. We have to broaden our understanding of what our original purpose on the earth is to do, which includes a number of things. Number of one, it includes cultural fields. Human beings and all of the cultural and social formations that have developed over history form the created order. Did you guys catch that? So our social and our cultural formations that have developed throughout the span of history, that's all the way back to the Mesopotamian era, that's through the Industrial Revolution, that's in the information age that we are now, we are shaping and we are forming culture and all of it now becomes under the umbrella of God's created order. Number two, vocational fields. Ultimately, the human vocation is a cultural mandate that is grounded in agriculture, but it includes technological, societal, artistic, and intellectual production. We could just put all that together and call them the seven mountains. This also includes relational fields. What does this mean? It means that as a human being, you and I have a relationship, not just with other human beings. 
It means that created in God's image, we have relationship with traditions. We have a relationship with social and political institutions. We have a relationship with the environment, with animals, with agriculture. We have a relationship with time and space, birth, death, history, science, art. We're related to technology, entertainment, economic systems. We're related to ideas, philosophies, ideologies. We're related to depression, illness, suffering, consumerism, globalization, violence. These are all things that now as humans we're related to and God cares about because they're part of the human culture. Listen to this quote by J. Richard Middleton. He says, the culture, the human cultural calling as the image of God. So all the things that I just read off to you, all the things that we just spouted in terms of our relationship with vocations and our relationship with the different forms of relationship in the earth, this suggests that the garden in Genesis 2 is not just a natural or an environmental phenomenon. It was a cultural project in which humans are to participate. Not only are humans made from the ground, they are also made for the ground with a specific task or vocation in mind. So the royal task of exercising power to transform the earthly environment into a complex sociocultural world that glorifies the creator. This is the cultural mandate. It is a holy task. It is a sacred calling in which the human race as God's image on earth manifests something of the creator's own lordship over the cosmos. What does that mean? It very simply means the unique thing that we do that no other part of the created order can do is we co-create, cultivate, and mediate God and his culture in the created order. No other created part of what God has done can do that. Impossible. So where does this leave us? Turn with me, if you would, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to leave you guys all hanging. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to read verse 50 to 58 together. So for all of you guys who are, you know, really hoping that uh, we're just going to talk about, uh, you know, how everything's going to get worse and worse and awful and awful. Listen, I believe that natural judgment uh, will happen as the result of sin on a national level, on a global level, on a personal level. Is, is that or is that not God's wrath? That's a discussion that we can have at a different time. What we do know is that th- none of this took Jesus, not, you know, the difficulty that is in our future did not take Jesus by surprise. Jesus says in Matthew 13, he says, the kingdom of God is like a man who went out and he sowed righteous seed. But then the enemy went out and sowed evil seed. And it says that both of those grew up together. So I'm not too quick to look around at every earthquake and every war and every rumor of war and say, this is it, this, this, this is it. It's all, it's all going away and God's gonna sweep us up into the sky and then tribulation's gonna come. I'm not, I'm not ready to say that. What I am ready to say is that we've got a great hope. What I am ready to say is that we have an assignment, a mission. Well, what I am ready to say is that Maybe if we continue to just dig a little bit deeper into the original intent of why God put man on the earth, we'll understand our future a little bit better. 
And our future is filled with hope. And we've got a work to do. And that work includes, but is not limited to, saving disembodied spirits for an immaterial faraway place. That's not what our work is limited to. We will preach the gospel. We're not gonna become a social gospel people where you know, we believe that we can just be saved by doing good works. That's not what scripture teaches us. We believe in God's plan of salvation. I just think our understanding of salvation has been a little narrow. So 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll read verses 50 through 58 as we close. And Jonathan, if you wouldn't mind coming up and we'll come to the table of the Lord on the basis of this scripture because I think this scripture, this passage of scripture really gives us hope. For those of you who are not familiar with 1 Corinthians 15, I encourage you to read this at some point this week on your own. The context of the entire chapter is the resurrection. It begins by talking about the resurrection of Jesus. It then talks about the resurrection of the dead. And then it starts to talk about our resurrected bodies. And when you read all of this with the proper understanding of the entire biblical plot and understanding of of a holistic eschatology, this becomes extremely informative and inspiring. But here's just a thought, and we're gonna get to this verse here in a minute. The thought very simply is, if all of this is going, if, if the final showdown of where all this is going is very simply disembodied spirits in an immaterial land far away, I'm just so curious what this last verse means. And let's read this, starting in verse 50. It says, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. That's speaking of resurrection, not rapture. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the imperishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is all talking about what we will experience when we experience resurrection. Now look at verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you and always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The resurrection, the new created order, and the study of end things is right here. They should fuel our work not discourage our work. Because the things that we invest our heart and our time and our intention to in God, they last beyond us. It's a famous quote by Martin Luther that says, if I knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I would plant a tree today. That's an understanding 
future that everything that we do in its redeemed state will remain in the restored created order of the earth. Why don't we stand to our feet this morning?